0: Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, Your host of the evening is a really funny dude. I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. and He's really funny. Uh, Give it up for Mike. Coming to you live, on tape, during week 93 of quarantine, from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City-adjacent, California boasting completely obstructed views of absolutely nothing this is the tully show i am your host mike tully joining me today by popular demand the lead singer of clutch whose 12th studio album is entitled book of bad decisions hello and welcome neil fallon
1: well thank you very much you're really selling culver city
0: Oh, it is a hell of a town. It's right near a bunch of very exciting places, and one day we might get there ourselves. Are you down in uh, in the
1: Maryland area? I live in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Yes, so yes, okay. Maryland, but that's the metropolis that we orbit around.
0: You said something. I scrolled through your, uh, your Twitter to see what you've been up to and what you've been thinking about, and you said something that's been rattling around in my brain ever since. You said that um, you have weird feelings about the metropolis of D.C., Because it's an industry town, but it's an industry that doesn't have, I forget the word that you used, a utility or a product.
1: Yeah, I guess it's only product is paper and policy.
0: Right. I never thought about that because there's plenty, you know, Hollywood, Los Angeles is an industry town, and whatever you might think of the movies that have been coming out for the last 10 to 40 years, there's a product. I never thought of politics as an industry, but of course it is. It's a feeding frenzy.
1: It is, and there's, I mean, I guess it's an intangible thing one of the things that's kind of I know people talk about D.C. in bad terms, but that's always in terms of the government and the people that live here. I mean, it's just like any other city. There are people who work in the service industry and cops and teachers and you name it. Uh, But there's a whole nother layer of people who come here with no intention of staying here for maybe eight years and. My family was no exception. My dad moved here in you know, 81 thinking we were going to be here a year because he was working as a government contractor. We stayed here uh, ever since, but <clears throat> DC is a peculiar town because there are, there is the residents that live here and love here and raise families here. And then the people that kind of just kind of dip in and dip out. Uh, it's, it's, I love it. I think it's a great city. It's a uh, often maligned uh sometimes for the right reasons, but if you peel away the layers, it's has um, got a great culture here.
0: I haven't spent enough time there to, to have an opinion on that really. I, I love the little um, hints of intrigue that come with it being the, the government town, I know someone who knew someone who lived there and the story that they had was about the huge golf course country club that was being built and then it leaked that actually it was this gigantic underground government bunker that was secretly being built. And once word leaked, they had to stop building the country club because the Chinese would already know about what it was really supposed to be. And I don't know if any of that stuff is true, but that's fun.
1: Yeah, there's all sorts of urban legends about the city and I'm sure there are plenty of secret things. Yeah. Uh, It's very... um, very intriguing and it goes back to the beginnings of the founding of the city i mean you can get into the whole conspiracy theories of freemasonry and the city plot and the way it was laid out and i find that to be all very fascinating but i don't don't know what you're talking about please tell me more oh well there's plenty of books written on and i'm I'm by no means an expert but if you were to look at the bird's eye view of washington dc as it was planned uh this the lines served from what i understand two practical purposes one anyone who's driven in dc will tell you it's a pain in the neck to drive around that's because they wanted turns so no invading army could just march straight on through they had to get caught in between you know not only circles but dog legs and this and that but also a lot of symbol uh symbolism uh with freemasonry symbols you know sometimes i wonder if that's just trying to like a uh, confirmation bias or you're just looking for it but some of it is pretty impressive i mean if you do it the math of it it's hard to deny
0: interesting yeah i've never been able to wrap my head around the the freemasons they seem like a kind of like a conspiracy without uh, a really explicitly evil angle like i can't figure out exactly what it is that we're supposed to fear the freemasons were attempting to do or are perhaps still attempting to do
1: yeah, I mean, it's any secret society. I guess it's easy to assume the worst. I've always kind of thought of them. It's a fraternity.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, well, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, I'm happy to finally have you here. Every now and again, I put out on my social media who do you want to hear on the show, and your name comes up uh, consistently. So I know there's a lot of people who are happy to hear from you. You've been on my radar since oh. the um, I was a DJ on a station on Sirius XM that had a show with Bam Margera, and you okay. were one of the bands that kind of got that, that bam push. I was always curious about that. It seemed like you were the only band that bam really responded to. That wasn't like a makeup wearing Swedish Satanist. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. Bam doesn't live too far from us. His family, you know, sure. he and I, apparently he would come out to see our shows before his career took off. And then his career took off and he invited us onto his show and we performed, um, on a sledding Hill somewhere in the middle of Pennsylvania. And he did a video for us and he, he kicked down a lot of doors for us with MTV. I mean, MTV at that time was just barely playing any music at all, let alone rock and roll music. It was sort of like the last gasp of rock and roll on MTV. And, uh, you know, thankfully he, you know, brought us in and it introduced us to a lot of people at that time. And his brother, Jess and I, you know, have been in a band together. The company band and actually we were just texting each other about an hour ago uh so that, just that's is good great. people yeah he is
0: so what are you doing um with i'm assuming you have lots of extra time on your hands that ordinarily would have been spent on the road it would seem like with this amount of time there would be a ton of like double concept albums being written by a lot of bands across the world but i know a lot of people are sort of suffering from this just sort of hazy head it's kind of hard to get your head on straight and as much as you kind of feel like you should be productive it's kind of hard to 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 make anything of all this extra time what are what are you doing is there anything you've been up to that you wouldn't have ordinarily been up to
1: well i think there's two things to be said about that i mean the i get it the the muse is on strike she she's checked out uh and i certainly do not want to write a record about covid or quarantine i think there's going to be plenty of those yes Frankly, I just want to forget about it. I want to write a, a fun rock and roll record. It's going to take a hot minute to get in that headspace because, you know, until that this is in the rearview mirror, it's it's hard to exhale and have fun, you know, with the kind of shenanigans that are required to make that kind of record. Uh, but in the meantime, we've learned how to stream like a lot of other bands. We are in a very fortunate position that the four of us in Clutch live close to each other you know after this i'm going to go head over to the doom saloon and we're going to rehearse uh songs because we got a lot of them and we want these streaming events to be different every time and that's a great uh exercise one for us to stay in shape because music is a physical thing and if we just sit here and mope month after month by the time we get to go out on the road we're not going to be able to do it so we want to come out swinging and um you know we're We're fortunate that the technology allows us to stay in contact with the fans, and you know, kind of uh, be able to interact with them and make a little bit of money. Let's be honest; you know, this is that's also part of the equation. A lot of bands are having a hard time keeping the lights on, and we're no different. There was a week in March, and I'm sure most artists remember this week in March when they saw the entire touring circuit of 2020 evaporate right before their eyes, and that was like, okay. That's my rent, my mortgage, my groceries, just kind of poof. And then I remember that was a very dark, you know, weeks and months trying to say, well, hell, what do we do? And thankfully, we had the ability to get up and streaming. And that gives us every couple of months a goal. And goals are important, you know, not to sound like a life coach, but they really are.
0: Especially nowadays, everybody kind of feels mentally and even physically stuck in the mud. You need to have something that you're working toward now there's plenty of people across the performing spectrum who are working out you know okay workarounds for being able to do live stuff comedians are performing in drive-in movie theaters and stuff like that do you see a way that live music can be really profitable short of the model that we all knew and loved until
1: six months ago no right i don't um the thing is I've, i've I've seen these experiments with reduced capacity rooms. What that's going to do is going to make tickets astronomically high. And it's going to make concerts only accessible to the very, uh, you know, wealthy or people that have the kind of expendable income. Uh, tickets, you know, are getting higher and higher and higher because that's even before this, because that's how bands need to make money because no one's making money selling CDs. No one's making money off of Spotify, you know, 99% of every artist. So it was merchandise and touring. Now that that's evaporated, uh, well, what are you going to do? A uh, 25% uh, of capacity and sell the tickets at $500 a head. Uh, that just morally. And uh, it just doesn't sit with me. Right.
0: Yeah. And those guys are going to be dicks anyway.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <for> most likely. <laughs> uh, I think uh, Ultimately. We're just going to have to wait. Yeah. So we have uh, we all know confidently that when we walk out of that room, we don't stay up at night wondering if we did a uh, did a bad. Yeah. We've had offers to do shows. I'm sure we are not going to do that. And, you know, people want to say we're chicken shit for doing so. So be it. Don't care.
0: Well, you're going to face criticism. I've seen bands who have, you know, dip their toe, and I've even seen the the bands who have the who do it and then say, "Well, here's the reason why we did it. We canceled other ones, and this is why this one was specifically okay." And they get hammered from the other side. So there's no way to yeah. be immune, immune from that criticism. I guess you have to go with your your gut and your and your brains and just hope this all blows over sooner than later. Um, I, I, I get that. Ahead. I
1: understand. I, if The bands want to do a show. That that's all well and good. Yeah. Uh, but I just don't want to be uh, the reason someone a month later says, hey, you know, yeah. you, you got me sick because people will always cast blame.
0: Well, oh. yeah, and I know performers who are who have gotten that tweet or that phone call or, or whatever. And uh, at that point, obviously, it is far, far too late. Um, I went through your uh, Twitter just to see some stuff that you've been talking about to get some jumping off points for our conversation. Uh, about a year or two ago, you gave a speech at something called DEFCON.
1: Yeah, oh, yes. What what was that all about? Okay, well, it's a long story. I'll try to condense it down. Uh I'm not going anywhere. Okay. You are though. <laughs> yeah, I got all the time in the world, believe. <laughs> um, several years ago, I was off I got an offer to do a podcast uh, called Social Engineer. And I kind of it was not a music podcast, it was a hacking uh podcast which kind of surprised me and I was excited about it because it was different Mm -hmm. and I kind of put it off and put it off. Are you
0: interested in that sort of thing in general?
1: I am now, now that I've been introduced to it because I was always a, it was behind the curtain. And now that I've been able to peek, I find it to be incredibly fascinating and wish I had gotten into it 15 years ago. But at any rate, uh, our album earth rocker got bootlegged and I wanted to know why and how. It was only a couple of weeks before it's released, so I called Chris Hadnagy, who was the guy who asked me to do the podcast. How did this happen? He figured it out in a matter of days. It was a group of Russian hackers who uh, had a mole in a German pressing plant and put some kind of manifesto about everything needs to be free up on the dark web. And you know, and then we knew, and that was it. We weren't trying to do legal action or anything like that. So then I did the podcast as a way to say thank you, and then we became friends. And uh, he started a group called the International Lies Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization of volunteers, hackers, who volunteer their skill and time to unmask online child predators. And he did this because he realized that law enforcement are, are doing their best, but the problem is so overwhelming that they can't handle all of it all the time. And these people are geniuses at this kind of technology and he realized that he needed a way to raise money to, to help the foundation and I was pretty much the one public-ish person he knew and he asked me about it and I at first I was like kind of repulsed because of this the subject matter I didn't want anything to do with it but then I thought about it and I spoke to my wife about it and she said well you've been given an opportunity to help kids who are in horrific situations if you say no are you going to be okay with that and then i realized that i wouldn't be and i had to do the right thing and because i did that i've met so many wonderful people who are doing wonderful things and to answer your question i got invited to speak at his forum at defcon the social engineer village and that was a real eye-opener i've never that was a baptism by fire. I didn't know anything about the world of DEF CON. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad it was, it was a, it was, an, it was an education that's still ongoing.
0: And what specifically did you talk about? What was the point of your talk?
1: Well, my point was, I mean, their whole, Chris in his village is about social engineering or human hacking, which is about manipulating people to get your way. And what he does and is his, his company is penetration tests of companies that hire him basically to break in, whether you pose as like, oh, we're your, uh, we're your pest control guys or we're, your, we're your vending machine guys. And then you talk to people on the phone and get information about this and that. And then eventually you're able to get physically into the building and then you tell that company, okay, here are your weak spots, which is all, almost always uh, human. And yes. I think that's exactly what happened with that Twitter hack. Yes. Uh, a couple weeks ago, it was a human weak link in their system. So my angle was about music being uh, a form of hacking. People, you can control people's emotions instantaneously with music, and it's you know it's a subtle thing and something we overlook. But you can uh, one of the main points or not main points or examples I gave was you know, this sounds ridiculous when I'm talking about it out of context, but Chipotle. Okay. You going to If you go into Chipotle, uh, you'll hear the music and it's really fast and it's really loud. And you couple that with the fact that the floors are almost always concrete and they have corrugated steel on the walls and the ceilings are very high and the seats are very uncomfortable. And all that is designed to do is get people eating as fast as possible to get them in and out of the door. And music plays a big role in their bottom line. It raises your heart rate. You feel a little bit stressed out and you want to just jam that burrito right into your face. Mm-hmm. There were a couple other points. Uh it's been a while. I I think, yeah, public speaking is not my forte. It's completely different than singing. There's no beat. And I was a nervous wreck. And I think they videotaped it. Um, but they could they had to take it down because there was so much music in it. There was a lot of copyright infringement, so they couldn't broadcast it. But it was a good experience. I'm yeah. glad I did. Uh it's important to get out of your comfort zone to to learn.
0: Yeah, I hear a lot these days about how you need to get uh, comfortable being uncomfortable. It's interesting what you say about the whole corporate sound, sound design thing. The the corporate sense, too, you know, like it's not a coincidence that like every target smells exactly the same. Those are designer scents that they're making. But, you know, people use the word Muzak as this passe thing of elevator music from the 70s. From what I gather, Muzak as a corporation is alive and well and offers thousands of channels that are fit uh, designed to fit consumer moods and so when you go to you know if, like we have a couple different chains of supermarkets here i'm sure you have a couple different chains of supermarkets they all have different playlists that are designed to appeal to the person who's there. And I, I someone who is particularly very sensitive to music, there's stores I can't go to because the music that they think is going to appeal to their people is, is so goddamn, is so goddamn bad. I noticed my local chain played, um, opposites attract by Paula Abdul one time, but they had taken out the MC scat cat, uh, verses because I gather somewhere along the way they found out some portion of their clientele is so offended by rap that even MC oh. scat cat would not pass muster. <laughs>
1: sounds about right and i actually did talk about muzak in the talk uh-huh. quite a bit and how it was and i wish if you would, no one knew you were going to ask me about this i would have gone through my notes but a brigadier in the army i believe it was the army he was a coder and a uh an electrician and he started muzak early as pi- piping music into elevators and that's how it got its uh start and that's why we call it elevator music and then he realized there was a lot of money to be made and they used to sell these records with basically charts on the back like watch the productivity of your workers go up when you play this record and Whoa. it was just sort of nonsense graphs there was no scientific you know study but it looked cool uh and it and it does work to a degree i mean people like running to music at a certain tempo people like falling to sleep to ocean waves you could call that music uh or Enya. Yes, or Enya. you could sail away with Enya and <laughs> soft soft focus, <laughs> and I think it's very, um, I, I think it's very intriguing because this is an ancient, ancient thing. You know, humans listening to beats and harmonies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You can even speech. Some of the best uh, orators are basically musicians, and you can hypnot. If you're good at it, you can hypnotize a whole crowd. That's one thing that got me thinking about it because I the high of seeing a. Thousands of people before you, and you feel as if you have them all in the palm of your hand, that is the strongest drug you can imagine. And I can see why uh, people that are in extreme positions of power don't want to let go of that. Because to walk away from that, yeah, you know, this is sort of the big letdown. But you got to get off stage sooner or later. I mean I think sometimes why, that's why artists turn to drugs and alcohol, because they want to stay up there. Because when you have 10,000 people all moving to what you're doing, you, suddenly you're the center of the universe. But the fact of the matter is none of us are the center of the universe. Uh, I could go on and on about that.
0: No, I, I find that interesting because you don't fit the the typical prototype of a, of a lead singer. I think that there are... Well, okay, I've always thought... I don't know if you've ever dabbled in cocaine. I'm not gonna ask you if you have or you haven't, but I know I did and everybody I know did, and most of us were like, oh, that's fun, and then kind of moved on with our lives, and there was always a small subsection. There was always one guy in the circle who was like, oh, okay, this is the thing that's been missing from my life since I was since I was a kid, and I feel like a lot of lead singers are the kind of people who it's, we all love to feel like 10,000 people are hanging on our every word, but there's some people who, who find that they need that more than the average bear would need that, you don't seem like you're wired that sort of way. I don't judge you to be that kind of guy. Do you miss that, that power, that thrill of having, you know, a, a field full of Germans hanging on your every word?
1: <laughs> um, I love it when it's going right. I mean, I've, there's also been times where it's like my voice gave out and then it's the opposite. It's the worst feeling in the world. You never want to show your face in public again. Uh, to answer your question, I, no, I've never done blow. Because okay. I, I, I know my personality type. I would probably think it's the best thing in the world and I wouldn't stop. I mean... You're not missing I, much. I, yeah, I've, I've seen plenty of casualties over the years um, to, you know, lead by example. Uh, but I think I have to thank my parents and also my bandmates and the people that we surrounded ourselves with that if the day came that suddenly I started acting that way, they would put me right back in line. I um, I've seen plenty of bands or particularly front men who are always on stage. And those are not fun people to hang out with. <laughs> we all, we all put our pants on one leg at a time.
0: Yeah. Typically uh, their bandmates agree too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> typically. Yes, sir.
0: <laughs> I also saw that uh, you have mentioned on your Twitter that a recurring theme in your lyric writing is the civil war and you expect it always will be i wonder what it is about the civil war that you find such uh, um uh, an intoxicating subject
1: uh, i think it started when we moved the band that is to a house in west virginia that was built in 1780 which at that time would have been virginia uh, and was right next to harper's ferry and i really got engrossed uh with the history of it I think we have a tendency as a people to think of anything that's in black and white to be ancient history. And I think in terms of human history, that was yesterday.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Civil rights movement was about a minute ago, if you look at the span of human history.
0: Joe Rogan I, makes a joke that Thomas Jefferson was only like three people ago or four people ago in terms of uh, human lifespans.
1: I th- yeah, it's, it's important to keep these things in mind. I don't think this con- country ever really came to terms with it. Uh I mean, and I think we also gloss over the fact how incredibly horrific it was. it was a, just a nightmare and you you see and it took you see a whole generation dressed in black for the rest of their lives and just ruined bodies, ruined minds, ruined economies uh and i I don't romanticize it I think for a minute, I kind of got into the little bit of the romanticization of the civil war, but there's nothing to be romantic about it. It, it, It's awful. And we're still dealing with it. And I, I suppose we will always deal with it in some capacity in this country for better or worse. And I think in these days, you see a lot of the words civil war getting thrown around very freely. Let's be real clear about this. You don't joke about that. And it's, it's easy to say these things on, on a keyboard or on your Twitter account, but these this is a different situation now. We're not talking – people don't have one musket in their house. It's, it's, it, you see it on the news right now, and it scares the shit out of me that a couple of events in the right way could get out of hand very quickly. We have spent far too long built, building this country, whether by choice or by force, but here we are. Let's not fuck this up. We, have to, we, we owe it to our children to, to calm the fuck down. And there's too much beauty in the world to let ugliness manipulate us to other people's ends. Because that's the other thing that I worry about is that we're getting played uh, very much so. And I think that's why I always think about the Civil War, because it's a point of reference, um, Emotions well, never really serve out the betterment of man. We have to, we have to be, and womankind. We have to be logical about these things.
0: Yeah, which doesn't seem to be our national strong suit at the moment. Do you ever think there'd be a day where you'd actually talk about, like, let me just make the point of uh, uh, saying why another civil war would be a bad idea? It's interesting they say the history doesn't stay in in the history doesn't stay in the past. It, it's crazy oh. that there's even something we should have to talk about.
1: It is crazy, and it it's uh I do believe history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme in many it's many right. ways uh and we have to take we have to look at these things and not look at our ancestors as being you know stupid people because they didn't have cell phones. actually, they're probably a lot smarter than us. I mean, I know they would probably survive without t v and electricity much longer than I would for sure uh, they had a lot of time to think and you know meditate on things. We apparently do not. We've we've become a knee-jerk reaction nation, and I think it's not just us. I think it's globally. It, the technology is, I think, exceeded our ability to think. Uh, even though logic gave us these tools, our emotions are, you know, are, are what's uh, being driven by them.
0: It's amazing that I do feel like I have no time and I have all these projects that I'm trying to get to that I, you know, with varying degrees of success get to. And then every Sunday morning I get a thing on my phone telling me that I averaged two hours and 45 minutes of phone time last week. And I'm like, well, now that, that can't be possible, (laughs) but I don't don't think my phone is is lying. I, I feel like I could probably find that time if I would just blow this stupid thing up.
1: Yeah. You know, I often say, you know, probably the best thing I could do for myself is delete all my social media and then i'll probably start writing more songs i know you know spending more time with my kid i'm not going to get that back um that's and that's what matters and you know i've been told and i'm sure you have and a lot of people it's like well you're in a band you got to stay connected you got to stay connected in you know content content but uh, to what end i mean people spent no one was interested in my late night drunken thoughts when the band started why are they now i don't think they are i think we may be have kid, are kidding ourselves that we need to know everybody's business all the time people, well and you also for yeah, me and that, that's right. right
0: and also are you justifying something because your id wants you to do it there's i mean like the the sophomore slump with an album is a, a tale as old as time where a band has their entire lives to write an album and then the album hits and they spend so much time promoting it and doing morning shows in topeka that when it comes time to make the second album they haven't Written anything, what yes. is what is Twitter if if you are to believe that it's this very valuable tool, but an endless promotional tour that's taking away from the next round of product.
1: I th- I think there is a there's a truth to that. Um I find myself sometimes saying, okay, I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna sit in front of this microphone and get my guitar. Next thing I know, it's an hour and a half later, and all I'm doing is my thumb has a cramp in it because I'm scrolling through stuff that doesn't matter. I mean, I love, and, and there's also, there's people I like in real life who on, on social media, I can't stand. Right. I mean, it, it's the weirdest phenomenon. It's like, really? Who, who's the real person? And I hope that's not the case with me. I'm sure there's plenty of people like, oh, I love this band until I have read Neil's Twitter feed.
0: <laughs> I feel like your Twitter feed, if it makes you feel any better, is, is very, very on brand and only amplifies the things that, uh, that we like about you and your band.
1: Oh, good. Thanks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have to let you go. You have to go get to to real work. I thank you so much for making some time. It's been a pleasure getting to talk to you for a minute. Um, Clutch's latest album is called Book of Bad Decisions, and you do have all kinds of things going on on your website, virtual performances and whatnot. That is pro-rock.com?
1: That is correct.
0: Terrific. Thank you so much, Neil. Yeah, thank you. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a founding member of seminal sketch comedy group, The State, and now Emmy-nominated cast member of Reno 911, which has just returned for a second season on Quibi. Hello and welcome one of the greats, Carrie Kenny Silver.
2: Wow, thank you so much. I don't know about one of the greats, but I'll take it.
0: You, as you already know, you're a very, very big deal in, in our house. I think you're the second greatest comedian of all time in my home behind Pee Wee Herman. So well, there's no shame th- in that. Well,
2: th- th- as as you're, as considered by your eight-year-old, and that's my demographic. So <laughs> I got right in the pocket on that one.
0: You're big among the pre-tweens. Yeah. So uh, congratulations on the Emmy. More importantly, I, I realized Reno 911 has officially outlived Cops.
2: Reno 911 has officially outlived a lot of things. I don't know. Somehow we're just the gift that keeps on giving.
0: How did this reunion come together? Did you go to Quibi? Did they come to you?
2: So we, Doug Herzog is really the the biggest reason of all. Doug Herzog was an executive at uh, Fox when we sold this show as a pilot, which was actually supposed to be a spoof of Cops. Yes. And we did the pilot it did not get picked up. It sat on the shelf for five years, in which time Doug Herzog moved over to Comedy Central and said, hey, how about Reno 911? So he bought it a second time for Comedy Central. Then he left Comedy Central, now he's a Quibi, and he called and said, hey guys, third time's a charm. Do you want to do this again? So, But I would say that the enthusiasm for the project returning has really, that train has really been driven by Nisi Nash all along. She's the one that every few months would text Tom and Ben and I and say, okay guys, let's do this again. Why aren't we doing this again? So uh, it was a combination of things, but we're happy to be back
0: you can tell that the enthusiasm is there. The material is still there. I mean, it's still so funny after all of these years. I, I, I know this is sort of an insulting question, but is it easy to make the show as funny as it is? Or otherwise, how have you been able to make so, so many episodes? I mean, the, the bit now with like the train derailment with the, the cats, the cast cat, members. Cats it's it just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny. Time in and, and time out. Was it hard to recapture Reno 911 all over again? I can't believe it's been 10 years.
2: It's been ten years, and and we've actually been playing these characters for twenty years because we did the pilot for this exactly twenty years ago. So, um, is it you know it it uh, we definitely were nervous about coming back after a ten year uh, we'll call it a hiatus. Uh, in truth, it was we were canceled uh, and then came back, but uh, but really from the every, across the board, everybody in the cast said from the second that we hopped back in, it was like no time had passed. Um, You know, these characters, it's not brain surgery. um, And we lived with them for so long, they became part of us. So we feel like this is our best series we've ever done. So we're hoping more and more people will will see it. It's
0: nice. I guess you're exposed to a whole new generation of people. And it's nice the way shows live on nowadays. I'm sure you've been accumulating fans since the show has been off the air. That's not something that that used to be possible. Um, I... uh, I was curious to see how you would tackle this new cultural, political landscape that we live in. You hear Brooklyn Nine-Nine doesn't even know if they can make cops lovable. I guess it kind of helps that in a certain sort of way, the Reno PD, as portrayed on the show, were never all that lovable. You know, they're sort of anti heroes. You've really gone in guns blazing. This is still a very not PC cop show in 2020. What was the conversation like about how you were going to adjust the attitude of the show, the approach of the show, if at all?
2: You know, we didn't want to adjust anything, really. And we have never, ever pulled any punches. I mean, I feel like from the beginning, we have unapologetically been ourselves. And we have been telling these stories uh you know albeit through you know ridiculous fart jokes but we have been we have been telling these stories and outing these you know situations from the very beginning you know I mean we we did a thing about the border wall you know over 10 years ago you know we we this time around as you had mentioned we you know we had a a running piece about, you know, we've got to try and shoot a white guy and an unarmed <laughs> white guy, you know? So we, we have never tiptoed into anything. And um, yes, I think certainly it, it, it uh, it's um, we have to be wary of, we're very concerned about what's happening in the world. There's no doubt about it, but if we can kind of, you know, through comedy uh, shed light on some things, you know, that's really all we're, qualified to do. So, so that's what, that's what we're trying to do and, and make people laugh. This is a, this is a, you know, a, an insane time, uh, all around what we're going through. So if we can, if we can add a little bit of light to that, um, that's a, that's a real, that's a gift. So
0: your character, Trudy Weigel is, I think it's interesting. And I always thought it was interesting. The choice that you made, well, you know, being a huge fan of the state, you created so many characters, but you create a character, you live in it for three minutes, and then you just start with something brand new the next time. Here, you had to know that if all went according to plan, you were going to be playing this specific character for a long time. And indeed, you've probably been playing Trudy Weigel far longer than you ever thought that you might be. I'm curious where the character came from. What was the inspiration? What? How would you describe Trudy Weigel as a person? Because I don't see her as a comedy type. It's pretty much an original character.
2: Well, I'm really glad we didn't know that we were going to be playing these characters for 20 years because I probably would have put more thought into it and I probably would have <laughs> screwed it up. So
0: There's some genius at in that. the
2: time, the way that it all came together was that at the time when we were creating this pilot for Fox of... Reno 911, it was a Hail Mary because we, Tom and Ben and I had written a sketch show for Fox. That's what they bought from us was a sketch pilot, It had nothing to do with Reno 911. So it was like a state type show. We hired the cast that you see on on Reno 911 now for a sketch show. None of us had done improv. We were not improv actors. But at the last minute, we realized, wait a second, they're not so into this idea anymore after we delivered the script. So we've got $5 left and five minutes. Let's try and make a TV show here. What if we do a spoof of cops, which is already on their network? Quick, run. grab Somebody go rent some cop uniforms. Pick what's your your, uh, deputy's name? What's your deputy? I mean, we came up with this so quickly. And the only reason it was improvised was because we had no time to write it. So it was just a hail mary, and I think I think that's one of those those I think that worked to our advantage in a major way. So there wasn't much time to think, which uh, I think was a benefit. Um, over time, though, of course, you have to develop a real, true character with a full life and a full backstory, or it's not interesting. The relationships are what people come back for on this show. How we're relating to each other, what happens, you know, throughout the lives of these people. Um, you know, somebody once said about Trudy Weigel. You know, it's fun to watch her because she she bungles everything, and yet she really means well. Um, I don't know that she really means well. I right. I, I think um, I think she's she's that person who uh, so desperately wants to be liked, and seems that at every junction she takes the wrong road. Um, I find something really. Uh, freeing about playing a person that says that something comes out of their mouth before they've, they've had a chance to think about it. There's something really fun about that. Um, And then also, you know, there's just the, the statement on people who are like that, you know, obviously uh, the, 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 the things that she says and does are not uh, my uh, personal opinions on life or people or, or, for society, um, I mean, I think everyone probably knows that, um, but I'm saying it in case people don't. Uh, but um, but it's it's kind of fun to be able to you know sort of shed a light on people people like that. And um, I don't know, I've gr- I've grown t- to really love playing her. She's um, there's often times when we do one of the pieces where I will say to Tom and Ben, you know, I know we had written for Trudy to be in this but I'm actually going to pull her out of it because what my what my role as I see it in the show often is a derailer. So sometimes pieces need to be driven, driven home really hard, really fast. We've got to get this perp. It's it's really about the joke is about, you know, we've got to get this guy, you know, for for reason x y or z. If Trudy's in there, Really, my purpose in the comedy of the show is to derail it and sort of take it off in another direction. That works for other types of pieces. So, you know, I, I, she has a, she has a purpose, you know, in this machine. Um, but the purpose isn't always to to move things forward <laughs> in an effective
0: way. Well in certain ways I think she's the heart of the show because she's um the most obviously vulnerable of of, of the group i'm I'm curious how you in your mind you know when you're figuring out the the universe of the show, how do you define the relationship between uh, Trudy and between Dangle? He kind of seems like he's like a gay-leaning bisexual man. You seem like more of an asexual cat lady conceivably on the spectrum, and yet there clearly <laughs> is this underlying chemistry of a somewhat sexual nature between the two of you. Where do you well- see that living?
2: I think Trudy would be happy to hear you think that the, that the chemistry that there is chemistry coming back uh, and forth there I definitely see. is not there it's definitely one direction. I just thought it was you know it happened again. We didn't plan out okay, you know, here's here's the index card storyboard of, of the life of these characters. We didn't we didn't do that in the beginning. Um, just because, <laughs> because we didn't have time. Um, so it had to evolve over time and I found something really I don't know I'm, I'm a dark human being Mike but I found something really wonderful about watching her flail and you know really throw her heart at this man who clearly it has no interest in her for a myriad of reasons yeah. um, and but she just keeps coming back and back and back and I just I find that a wonderful you know a, a wonderful dynamic you know uh, in the relationships of of the show the way they they developed organically over time a good example is um you know we did this i, I don't know if you remember the the serial killer that that Trudy weigel ends up marrying uh sure. yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He, he gets he they get, they get married at his execution right right so kyle dunnigan is the actor who plays it kyle came on just to do a guest just one guest thing. He was a guy trying to buy ice cream at a, at an uh, at an ice cream truck and Trudy, you know, in our in our uh, improv started hitting on him. And then so after the day was over, we said, you know, let's have him back. And maybe Trudy kind of tries to start to date him. So we had him back one more time and then it got, you know, a little more heated. And then we were like, you know what, let's have them keep dating. Okay. Turns out he's a serial killer. She finds a foot in his fridge and then, okay, now he's going to get executed, but let's have them get married. So, you know, it's, it it was fun to bring him back this time because of course he's dead now because he was mm. executed. So yeah. how do we bring him back? Uh, well, is he a ghost? Is he a hallucination? Is he whatever? In the world of Reno, you don't really have to explain a lot. So, um, you just let it develop over time. And if it's funny, it'll come back.
0: I'm curious, has the community of, or the government of the city of Reno ever expressed an opinion about Reno 911?
2: As far as we know, they, for the most part, love us. We had, we had never actually been to Reno uh, until we did a press tour, a press event in Reno for the film when we did Reno 911 Miami. So as an entire cast, we get off the plane at the airport in Reno, and there is a wall of cops standing there with their arms folded, just staring at us, and our hearts dropped, and we thought, oh, my God. And they all lifted up their arms and started laughing and came in for hugs and we thought oh god thank god you know this could have gone either way (laughs) but they they seem to you know every every time we're out shooting somewhere a cop comes up to us and says oh we've got a dangle we've got a weigel oh that's our williams you know no Um, kidding so they they can all relate um in in one way or another for better or for worse
0: that's good to hear. I don't think I'd want to be on the wrong side of the Reno PD. Um, yeah, so
2: <laughs> I don't think so. I would want to either.
0: <laughs> so I've done some uh, some stuff on the radio that I don't necessarily want my children to hear. Again, you know I have an eight-year-old son. I never thought, honestly, I'd be doing this long enough that things might live long enough for them to see. Now, you are um, a mother of, I think, a, about a 15-year-old.
2: That's correct. My son is 15. Just turned 15.
0: So as the mother of a teen who recently filmed herself waxing her pubic region (laughs) with a rat trap, just so I know, moving forward with my own life, what's the plan going in there? Do you and your child watch that together? Do you expressly forbid your child from watching that? Do you just hope your child has not yet signed up for Quibi?
2: Now, let me just ask, Mike, are you planning on doing a bit where you wax your pubic area? Because it's been done.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I would never, I would never really film myself doing that. That's more of, that's more, he knows that's dad's me time.
2: (laughs) You leave leave that that for me. Um, you know, it's, um, it's right when he was born, I did have a moment where I thought, wait, can I be still be doing this? Is this okay? Um, and clearly I am. So I, 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 you know, I was worried for a time when he was younger because, you know, my son was born in that sort of gray area where we went from, flip phones to smartphones to, uh, social media. And then it was like, Oh wait, this thing, everything I've ever done really is going to be everywhere at some point. Uh, and, and Google Google Googleable or, you know, ask Jeevesable if you're old enough to get that reference. There was a time. Um, There was a time. So, um, I mean, I, at that point I thought, well, I've already screwed the pooch on this one because I was, eight months pregnant in our final season for comedy central. And I yep. used my insane looking self at every juncture. So, you know, a lot of shows you'll see someone's pregnant and they're, you know, it's, Oh, it's so beautiful. Look at you. You're so beautiful. Your mother, you're glowing or whatever. I thought I would look hilarious because all I ate was McDonald's and I didn't exercise and it was hilarious to me. So I was basically nude every chance I got. And, um, and I and I I loved it. And then, right as he was born, I thought, "Oh, that's right. He's a he's human a being. He's yeah. a person. Thank God, he's a weirdo like me and like my cool. husband, and he digs it." And you know, I mean, my my dad is a is an actual cartoon bird. So I grew up with my my father was a cartoon bird for a living. He's the Cocoa Puffs bird, and I worship him. So what what you know what does my family expect? Of course, of course, this is what I do for a living.
0: You give me a lot of hope. Um, it, brought us, it brought us a lot of joy throughout the household to see the the state reunite for the Zoom remake of Porcupine Racetrack. Once again, kudos to you. That's a lot of effort to put into something called Porcupine Racetrack.
2: Yes. Well, uh, it seems to live on. And mm-hmm. um, at, at its heart, every state member, we're just like, you know, music, you know, uh, musical theater nerds. And so we... we we love doing it any chance we get doing a musical number together. We then did a, uh, I don't know if you've heard about it. We did a, a charity event that we called zoom with the state and we read a bunch of old uh, sketches and did, you know, some Q and a and raised, I think we've raised almost a hundred thousand dollars for yeah. NAACP and California immigrants uh, resilience yeah. fund. So that's pretty great to be able to, you know, dance around in your living room, you know, making old jokes, and uh, and people showed up for it and, and donated. It was really, really, really incredible.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. I saw all that on David Wayne's website, and I, w- I would love to see you all do, do more of that stuff as long as we're all left to our yeah. own devices inside. Yeah. Have, if you'll indulge me, I have a couple of quick state questions I've always wondered about. Okay. Um, were members of the state ever courted by Saturday night live. It just seemed like you struck at a point where it was a fallow season era for SNL. And you guys were seemed like the choice of the new generation. Did Lauren Michaels come knocking for some or all of you?
2: So I believe I was the only one who actually auditioned. I I, I could be wrong about that, but in my memory, I was the only one who auditioned. Um, I did not, as you can probably guess, I did not uh, get the part. Um, but i i believe that year they ended up not taking a new woman i think someone signed on for longer if my memory serves me correctly so the quota regardless the quota was full as far as yeah. i know but that could have yeah. just been my agent being you know just trying to set me you know he's ease, ease the the information but um but you know, we had a real cocky attitude about us ourselves at the time. I don't know where in the hell it came from, but we had no business to be as confident as we were. Um, I think it ended up, you know, serving us okay. You have to have a certain amount of, of confidence when you go in to, to do comedy. Um, but we really thought, like, well, we're the you know, who needs who needs all you know the old establishment. Uh, here we are, America, so I don't know. It was kind of I look back at some interviews. I'm like, oh my God, who do we think we were? But, um, I think we've grown into respectable human beings for the most part,
0: yeah, yeah, and it's so nice to see you all doing well. I felt like for a minute there, I expected as soon as the MTV run ended that you guys were just everybody was gonna be doing movies and stuff like that and and it didn't happen overnight, and I at a certain point, I have to think you were talking to each other about like, what the hell happened? We were we were all poised to be six, seven, eight different superstars. Was that a conversation right. that happened amongst yourselves?
2: Well, Tom and Ben and I and Michael Black went off to do Viva Variety, a show yeah. on Comedy Central, which sure, I course, really, yeah. I really wish they could re-air. They can't because the music licenses all yeah. ran out. We had an incredible music guests every episode, like Run DMC and Duran Duran. You know, just like really crazy great great uh, musical acts which you you know they can't now replay them because of the the, the music um, but so we kind of never really stopped working and it wasn't this nec- didn't all necessarily hit at you know so to speak but we yeah. kept working we went right from the state into viva variety and did that for a few seasons then we did a couple pilots and then then we did Reno so um, not that we you know left the state and went on and became celebrities by any stretch of the imagination, but we kept working and everybody else was working, you mm-hmm. know, in their various, you know, films and, and shows and stuff. I'm I'm kind of amazed when I look back and think, God, that 11 people and A, nobody's dead, nobody's in jail, and everybody really just kept going and having these really lovely careers. So... I'm kind of waiting like- waiting for one of the other 11 shoes to drop at some point.
0: <laughs> you are a dark person. That is, that is one way to look at it. Welcome to like- my brain. I feel like collectively the alumni of the state have never been more prominent. It seems like every, you know, Showalter directing and and, and Wayne and so on and and so forth. It it, honestly, I feel such an affection for all of you and it makes me so happy to see all of you doing so well. And uh, it's been lovely talking to you and I encourage everybody to check out four members of the state plus occasional pop-ins from more on Reno 911, which is streaming now on Quibi Season 2 of The Return of Reno 911. Thank you so much. It was lovely to meet you. The Emmy-nominated Carrie Kenny Silver.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.